serving in a Christmas play, being uplifted as you come to church, hearing a testimony of Christian conversion, being baptised as a Christian, being loved in struggle and hardship. What do all those beautiful realities have in common? They all have in common that they are the fruit of service. They are the fruit of other people's service. And they are the fruit of your service. See, what occurs within church life occurs because we serve. We serve in different ways and we serve one another in different ways. And that is a beautiful, wonderful thing. You only have to be part of the church for a small time to realise, just as Deb was saying, how wonderful it is to be part of a fellowship of God's people. And so, in one sense, we can feel quite burdened by that. There is lots for us to do. But what I want to do this afternoon is not to burden us as we think about serving, as we think about ministry, as we think about gifts. I don't want to burden us. I want to liberate us as we realise not what we have to do first, but first we realise what God has done in the Lord Jesus. What we're going to do is we're going to think about the nature of the church. We're going to think about three things. Firstly, why can a church grow? Secondly, how can a church grow? And thirdly, what is the goal of a growing church? And in that, I hope to show us the basketball doesn't go through that video. I'll have to show us what it is for us to serve one another in Christ's church. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask now in this moment that you would teach us what it means for Christ to be head of our church, his body. And what it might mean for us to realise that wonderful reality in our lives as we seek to express it day by day here at this fellowship of good people at the church. Amen. So firstly, why the church can grow? Well, the answer to that question is why can the church grow? It's quite simple. It's because Christ has ascended. When you open up to Ephesians chapter 4, that's where we're going to spend most of our time this afternoon. Because we see that reality. We see that reality in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. It says that he has ascended on high, that Christ has ascended on high, and he's led captives in his train and he has given gifts to men. This is not a new idea in the book of Ephesians, back in the very first chapter, in verse 20. It says that God has raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. Do you see what's important with Paul in the letter of Ephesians? It's that Christ has been raised. And he's been raised, and he is ascended, and now sits in heaven, enthroned. He reigns and he rules as the king of this world and indeed the entire cosmos now and for all eternity. There is no power that can threaten the reign of the ascended Christ. There is no title yet to be given to the ascended Christ. There is no territory yet for the ascended Christ.
tries to conquer. He reigns and rules as king. This is, this is key to Paul's thinking in this letter. But why? Why does Christ rule? Well, we're given a clue there in verse 9. What does it say? It says that he reigns and rules such that he might feel all things or to feel the whole universe. Christ reigns and he rules. And he has, sorry, he has been ascended and he reigns and rules universally that the whole universe might be full of his rule. But how, how will that happen? How will his reign and rule be so complete? Well, that's what verses 4 to 6 help us understand. Have a look there in verses 4 and 6. The way the ascended Christ rules now here on earth is through his church, through the body. The building of the church is inextricably linked to Christ because he's the head over the body, his body of the church. He's the head over our church. Christ's heavenly rule is expressed in earthly terms through his church. And so the gathering, the ordinary gathering of God's people is what Christ's heavenly rule looks like. See what we hold together here at church? We hold together some very ordinary bunch of people, if you don't mind me saying. Uh, gathering a pretty ordinary building here, doing fairly ordinary mundane things. But in the Apostle's mind, here is the expression. Back to chapter 3, here is the expression of God's wisdom. Here is the expression of Christ's rulership to our world in this ordinary bunch of people. It's it's an amazing thing. And so why can the church grow? The church can grow because Christ is ascended. He reigns and he rules. But so, secondly, how can the church grow? grow? Better still, how can Jesus grow his church? Well, how does that happen? Well, we see in Ephesians chapter 4 that he does that in two ways. The first way is by giving gifts to people. I don't know if you've seen the movie Sense and Sensibility, perhaps you've even read the novel, the Jane Austen novel, Sense and Sensibility. There's a scene where the king uh, post-enthronement uh, is carried away in the coach and as he's carried the coach gives gifts to the people because what's he doing at that moment? He's showing the kind of king that he is. He's a king who's powerful. He's a king who's generous. He wants his people to know the kind of king he is. And that's exactly the image that we have here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. Because that book there in verse 7 it says, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. The image there is of a victorious king. Um, and often what victorious kings did as they plundered an enemy, they would come home before their own people and behind them would be a train, a trail of all that they had conquered, the gold at the start, the jewels, and then all their prisoners of war. And the king would leave this procession in 
Well, here we have the image of the ascended king. And what, it is, what is his train? What are the spoils of the victory that he has won? It's his church. It's his body. And what has he given to this body? Verse 7, he's given grace. Each one of us, grace. We as a church are very um, consumed, really, by this idea of grace. We believe as a church that we are saved, not by anything that we have done, we believe that we are saved by grace. It's a very important truth to us. But that's what verse 7 is talking about, isn't it? It's not talking about being saved by grace. See, God's grace saves us. But here, God's grace is at work also, additionally, in another way, it's the grace that equips us. Because this ascended Lord has given gifts, has given gifts to his people. He's ascended to reign, and as he reigns, he gives. What did he do as he lived on earth? He gave himself. So do you think when he's ascended in heaven, he's knocked off from giving? He's having a break from graciousness? No. He ascended because he gave. And he doesn't stop. Grace is not something that Jesus retires from. Grace is something that he continues to give. And the grace that's been talked about, talking, it's been spoken about here, is the grace of the gifts that God gives his church for the building up of his body as we are able to see. And this is important just for us to pause and realise, because I know it's it's often the case that we know that we have been saved by grace, but I think it's too often that we don't even realise that that same grace has been operating in our salvation that gives us some freedom to live as Christians is also at work in empowering us to serve as Christians. You know why many of us don't serve? I don't have what it takes. Rubbish. If Christ has gifted you, you have what Christ sees fit and good and right for the building up of his church. And notice the language there. He doesn't say, you know, just casually, everyone's got a gift. No, he's pedantic about it there in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given. You see what's clear in the Apostle's mind? He's not saying that there are some groups of fantastic Christians, those super articulate, extroverted ones who talk about Jesus all the time, and then there's the less gifted, ordinary, introverted Christians who struggle with life don't really do much. No, each one has been gifted. And so if you're on that list, that means that there is no Christian person here who is not gifted for service because when Jesus gives a gift, he doesn't like that. So that means that everyone who is Christian is something is gifted. And you know what it also means? It means that every single Christian here is something that is needed because Christ knows what we need even if we don't know what we need. He does. And it also means, wonderfully, that we're different. We're all gifted. We're all needed. And we're all different. Sometimes in church life, I can 
there's, you know, the really important jobs, um, say something like praying, and, you know, we're always having people go on the prayer roster, and then we say, you know, can you go to the prayer roster, and you just don't feel like you can do that, you're not ready for that, or don't think you ever can do that. And then, so, the next thing that, no doubt, I think goes on in many of our minds is, yes, I can't do that, so therefore I'm not needed. But do you hear what Paul is saying here? He's saying we're all different. That Christ has gifted all of us, and in fact we need those with different gifts. And we need them coming together. Look at there to verse 16 of chapter 4. You see this idea again that there's all these different parts, all these kind of elements, all these, if you like, the word there is, um, you know, the concept there is the body with all the bones and joints and ligaments. I don't know how, but four or five doctors in this afternoon, so they can explain how it works, but you need all the little bits to come together to make a body work. And this is the image there in verse 16. There's a difference that appreciates. You can't talk, you don't like talking from a lectern. Who cares? That doesn't mean that you're not gifted for service in our church. And this is, in, in fact, one of the incredible things. It's not that, oh geez, you've missed out, perhaps. That uh, you don't feel like you can pray at church. Wouldn't it be great if everyone could be the kind of praying up front kind of person? No. No. Because unity comes about not by uniformity. The beautiful thing about being in church is that we're not all the same. And the most beautiful thing is when the difference comes together in a harmony, in a unity. Why? I thought there was one God and one body. Well, there is one God and there is one body, but that one God who is complete unity is also three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the church, as it comes together in its difference, echoes or mirrors who God is in himself, different persons united in love. See how we grow as a church? Well, we grow as a church on the assumption of diversity, on the assumption that there are people different from us, and that's not something to be threatened by. That's something to see as a gift from God. You know, so often <clears throat> what happens in life is, you know, my mum used to say, birds of a feather flock together. It's true, isn't it? You know, different uh, similar ages, occupations, interests, you just tend to get on with those people. And, and sometimes that happens in church, but all we've got to realise is that if Christ has gifted every one of us, then it, I can be involved and serve every single person, no matter what their background, their interest, their age. And the beautiful thing is when the diversity of age and background and gender all come together. And so can I say this after all, I do want to challenge you. If you have been gifted by Christ, and if you're a Christian, you have been, do not sit on it. Do not sit on the gift that Christ has given, because he has given that, not for you, but for the application of God's people. It's a gift that has been given to serve. Secondly, how does the church grow? 
well, first of all, it's by giving gifts to people, but secondly, it's by giving people as gifts. That's the second point there. You see that in verse 11. It says that he who gave some apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, as Jesus ascended on high, he has given the gifts of these people, these particular foundational gifts. Um, and you see that most clearly, I think there's a very good reason why apostles is first, because it's the most important. We see in the book of Ephesians that it's on the testimony of the apostles that the church is built in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Because Jesus' teaching and what he has done, what he did was codified and brought into order in the apostles. So that's the foundation. We're reading from the letter of an apostle here this afternoon, we do that many a Sunday. And so these are foundational elements. Evangelist there is uh, he's not dissimilar. I think it's just taking these very same truths of the apostles that are meant for the church, but taking them outside the church. And then lastly you see there that he speaks about shepherds and teachers or pastors and teachers. Interesting, this is one of the very few references to the word pastor uh, in the New Testament. I think it's more closely probably shepherd slash teacher, not shepherds and teachers. It's <coughs> two functions probably of the same person. And what kind of people are they? Well, they are people who have been captivated by the Lord Jesus. You see there that um, in Ephesians chapter 4, there's a quote there. There's a quote there from Psalm 68, there in verse 8. And it's a quote from Psalm 68, but I want to read the, the quote that Paul is referring to. And I want you to see if you can pick the mistake Paul makes. He must have been writing this on a Friday afternoon. See if you can work out the mistake that he makes. Okay, this is from Psalm 68. When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You received <coughs> gifts from men, even from rebellious ones. That you are much What's the mistake that Paul makes as he quoted Psalm 68? Gay. What does Psalm 68 says? What they they were given gifts, and Paul in Ephesians 4 says what? They, he gave gifts. So what do we make of that? Well, we just very briefly, uh, we didn't know a little bit about Psalm 68. Psalm 68 refers to the history of Israel, what God has been doing in the people of God throughout Israel. And it speaks about how God descended to Sinai, and then from Sinai went to Zion, or Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem up to the heavenly Jerusalem. He ascended, and as he ascended, he received gifts of men. What are the gifts that he received? Well, they're not trinkets. We read in Numbers chapter 8, verse 18, God says, I have taken the Levites in place of the first sons of Israel. God took the Levites. He took the Levites 
If you believe, like, if you have a man like Phineas, if you know um, from the Old Testament, a Levite, who was essentially a gangster, he was a thug. He was a man, a strong warrior, who engaged in activities that were wrong. And he used his strength for his own ends. But do you hear what God says? He does. He takes the Levites. He takes the captives. And you know what he does? He takes them and gives them back. He takes them. He cleanses them. He sanctifies them. And he washes them. This is the case of Phineas. He gave Phineas back to the people that he might be not a thumb, but a bodyguard of God's temple and his he takes a man who is a brute warrior and turns him into a warrior for God. We see this throughout church history, a man like Martin Luther who changed our world. He turned upside down in the Reformation. He was a warrior. He was a thug. He was a man with a big mouth and a big intellect, and yet God used him by taking him, cleansing him, sanctifying him and giving him back church. This is the gift that God gives of pastors and teachers and apostles that we as a church might be built up and as a pastor can I say that this is something I'm thankful that God does He takes people like me and He cleans them up He gives them back to His church I love discovering for myself truths. You know, the, the, the wonder of the discovery, the, just that exhilaration of just finding something for the first time. But you know what I'm realising? I don't discover very much. I've just forgotten a lot. And so when I discover something in God's Word, it's something that probably someone has taught me in the past. And this is a beautiful thing, that even as a pastor, I know that I need to be taught. And that I'm thankful for the men who have invested in teaching me. I think of a man called Greg Lee, who just mentored me, loved me, longed to me, wanted me to be a preacher and a pastor. I think of a man called Christianopolis, who throughout theological college, every Wednesday afternoon for three hours, would tutor me personally about everything I was learning. They invested and taught me. And so this is the wonderful reality for us as Christians. We don't have to discover everything for ourselves. We get the privilege of being taught. We get the privilege of being taught by God's word. Thirdly and lastly, the goal of the church growing. The goal of the church growing in Ephesians chapter 4 is maturity. I love saving. I really love it. But there's one problem. I get seasick. Anyone else get seasick? Motion sickness? Yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? I, um, I was part of a racing boat when I was 16 and 17 for two seasons. We sailed out of Pitwater, a 37 foot racing boat. And you go out to sea a little bit, and one particular afternoon, it was a very, very choppy swell. Really big swell. The problem was I had a really big lunch as well. And, and I was, my job on the boat was the bowman. Now, that was uh, the job for a nimble, young, silly, boy who got yelled at a lot by a very grumpy skipper who was a who was a rough guy and he was an ex-commander of World War II and he made a lot of money in the mine. 
and he was always barking at me, I was always doing anything wrong. Um, whether I was doing it right or not, he'd still be barking at me. And um, it turned into breeze, and because he was a bowman, the whole crew is basically looking at you and looking at what you're doing because they're behind you. The boat came into the breeze, the breeze became right on the nose of the boat. And at this moment, I could not contain the contents of my stomach. And as it was empty, the wind took it and directed it towards this grumpy old skipper. And he was always barking at everyone for everything that they were doing right or wrong. And I thought he would be so cross with me that day. But he wasn't. He, he said to me, good on you. Good on you for the fact that you just kept going. And it was a really lovely moment because being seasick is terrible. And that's the image that Paul has in mind here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. You can see it there. Because he's concerned that the people of God might be seasick. It's the, the language here is literally there, tossed back and forth by the waves. There's no way to escape the instability of being tossed back and forth. This is the concern that Paul has for the church that they become seasick, motion sickness by being tossed in the world that he wants. He doesn't want this for God's people because as a child, I don't know if you remember, some of us have a while to cast back in our minds what it's like to be a child. But when you're a child, do you remember? There's this constant sense of like instability, of fear, of not knowing. It's a very common childhood feeling. And Paul is saying he doesn't want his church to be like that. So what's the alternative to the seasickness of being the world tossed to and fro, to being like a child? The alternative to that is maturity. And how does that happen? What happens when we prioritise the body, when we make the concern of the corporate first in our minds? What's a key concern with first in their minds? What does immaturity look like? Immaturity sees in kids all the time. That's why we make our kids, some of us make our kids, some of us our kids want to play soccer. Why do we let them play and make them play soccer? Because we want them not to be so concerned for themselves. Work as a team. Work for the sake of the team. Pass the ball at him. Right? And this is Paul's concern. That we, as Christian people, would not be so concerned for ourselves. Posture and But we would be concerned for his church. If you read there in verse 13, Paul says that this building is to occur until we reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. That word mature is sometimes translated as mature manhood, but I think it's probably best translated as man, singular, become man in that mature sense, but in a singular sense. And you notice the reason he uses that word, this is um, slightly technical, but I think it's worth noting here because it's what's behind it is very significant. Notice there, he can say in verse 14 that you will no longer be tossed about as a child or an infant. He says, no, as children. 
it's depending on the translation. And so here what we have in Paul's life is this interplay, this kind of tension between the maturity of a single man and the immaturity of the individual. See, immature Christians are caught up in themselves. And if we are to mature as a church, we will not mature when we're tossed to and fro by the word, we're so concerned with ourselves. We will mature, we will grow, we will realise the goal of what God intends for us as a church when we become one, one man, when we're concerned for the one body above our own needs. He's talking about the reality of what it is to be concerned for a community first before we're concerned for ourselves. Earlier on, back in chapter 2, Paul said that God has created one new man in the place of two. See, God's purpose is that his community as a church would be so unified, so harmonised with all its difference, that it would be one man, one man standing mature. But this, but for this to happen, there must be a priority on not ourselves, but on our church, <coughs> on others. On what we on what we might even know to be best. The key to the unity of our church is not knowing what the best thing is. The key to the unity of God's church is for that unity to be expressed in service. See, our service of one another in church is not about getting the job done. You know, after the tent is done before the table, this is not our primary concern for getting morning tea done and getting someone to pray and do all those things. That, that's not the primary concern for service in our church. Primary concern as we serve in church is not getting a job done. The primary concern is that we will express and realise the unity, is that we will live not just for what we want and what feels nice for us and comfortable for us, but we would move beyond that for the sake of others and therefore express our unity in the lives. We get out of our heads and we get in the lives of others. There's no armchair expert in the life of a church. We're pursuing one another. And that unity is realised when we are released from the tyranny of our own selfishness. Let me close by just saying a couple of quick things. Often we think that there are things to be done in church and we through life have received a number of skills and so if we need some bookkeeping, accounting done, well, you might be an accountant. And so because you in life are an accountant, then yeah, there might be some opportunities for you to use those skills from accountancy in the life of church. But I think that's exactly the opposite way to view how you consider your involvement in church. Because Christ has not ascended on high for the sake of KPMG or PWC. 
He's ascended on high for the sake of the cause of his church. God in his general graciousness gives still to all people. But he only gives gifts for the sake of his church to Christian people. And so those gifts that you have been given have been given by Christ for his church. And that these gifts are not inherent in us. It's not because you happen to be an articulate person and therefore you get to speak. No, these are gifts beyond how they are made naturally. These are gifts that are given to us by Christ for the edification of his church. Last of the quotes of this last Friday, I went to a driving range, a golf driving range. Whenever I play golf, I've had to play with right-handed clubs, but I'm actually left-handed. And um, so it was the first time I've used left-handed clubs, and it was beautiful. It was lovely to feel what it is. See, I don't even like golf that much, but it was fun for an afternoon just to hit some golf balls. And as I looked around, and I felt such a novice, there were some people there that were all kitted up and dressed up with all their beautiful little clubs. And just the way that the motion of their speed was just a beautiful thing to watch. Have you noticed that perhaps in sport, when someone is built to do something and they're in the zone, it's poetic. Those of us who like sport, those of us who like music, it is beautiful to watch someone who is who is built for something in the zone. You know, often you see musicians in the zone, they're closing their eyes. Friends, as much as it's beautiful to see someone so built to hit a shot, so built to play an instrument. There is something far more beautiful for us to behold. And that is to see the way in which Christ has given us and to see the exercise of the gifts in our church through ordinary people like us. And friends, we're not closing our eyes. We're in the zone. We're opening our eyes to others. Sometimes we might not know what our gifts are. And sometimes we might not know what the areas in church are that we can exercise our gifts. And that's why I want to say in the close, the third one. Um, in the next couple of months, I've invited Elizabeth with a team of people in our church. And the goal is to sit down with every single person in our church and have a conversation with them about their gifts and about what it would look like to serve and perhaps even what it would look like not to serve. Because there is a beautiful thing about being in the church. There is a service sometimes in the life of a Christian person, but there's a, there's a service in not serving, by being served, as we've already heard expressed, by allowing others to love and bless you. Can I say, you've been gifted by Christ for service. You are different and you are needed. Let's pray that God allows us to be part of his service in his church for his glory. Amen.